This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Sarah Henstra, author of The Red Word and the young adult novel Mad Miss Mimic. Henstra is a professor of English at Ryerson University in Toronto. Her novel, The Red Word, takes place in the mid-90s at an unnamed Ivy League university. As feminism occupies the minds of the female protagonists, the male characters are deep into life at their fraternity, which is characterized by drug and alcohol-infused parties and, at the least, rumors of sexual assaults. As the novel progresses, the story reveals a war between the feminists and the fraternity brothers that is played out in ways that claim no clear victor. Told in the spirit of a Greek myth, the red word puts campus culture and rape at the center of the story's theme and plot. We began the discussion with Henstra talking about why she chose a campus novel. The first impulse I had for writing this book was a feeling that I have a special view on the world of campus in-groups, and it's not that many, many of us didn't attend university in the 1990s, but I sort of stayed there throughout my adult life (laughs) in that I graduated, you know, from a four-year honors um, BA and then um, took a year off, but went straight back for a master's degree in English and then back for a PhD in English and in English literature. And... I did a postdoctoral fellowship, and then I taught on the uh, contract lecturer circuit, and then I eventually got a tenure-track job um, at Ryerson University here in Toronto. So I've really spent many years on a campus. But the bit about in-groups was another thing I really wanted to explore, is um, I was that student who was passionately involved in different groups on campus. And like so many of us, I made a huge variety of friends that I, people that I had never known the likes of before, because, you know, high school is kind of a relatively monocultural, I think, compared to university. I was one of those students who drifted between groups. And I never really felt like I was the beating heart of one of the groups I was part of. So, you know, I did Um, sit around debating literary theory and feminist theory and, you know, Jacques Lacan and Derrida at the cafeteria. And then I would go out for beers with guys from the rugby team, you know, and had friends of friends who took me to all these different frat parties and, and, you know, J school parties where everybody was talking politics. And, and I, I always looked at other students and thought, oh, you're that person. You're the person who's sort of, you know, consumed with this and you're the heart of it and you're the person that people go to and surround, you know, in in the sorority, for example, you're the ultimate sorority sister or you are the ultimate campus politician. And, and it wasn't, that was never me. I was always on the periphery, you know, looking in and watching and kind of mentally recording what I was seeing, which I've since learned is what writers do. I mean, I've never really been at the heart of a group because I'm always watching and recording a little bit on the on the edge, right? Standing on the verge, watching the action go by. So the red word is rape. Where did that come from? The red word in the novel is the word rape. Um, it's also a word that uh, the female students who um, become very close friends over the course of the story 
um, they come together in part because they're all taking the same course. They're taking a course called Women in Myth, and it's taught by a very charismatic uh, fem uh, women's studies professor uh, named Sylvia Esterhazy, Professor Esterhazy. And in the first class, she uh, puts a Greek word on the board, which I cannot pronounce, um, but I did look it up. <laughs> and the, the narrator of the book says that this word is written on the blackboard. And it's a word that means originary myth, a founding myth of a culture. So not a story of Olympian gods or Adam and Eve in the garden or any of those particular myths, but one of the founding founding myths about what it means to be human. It's kind of like a like an er myth is what this word means that she writes in Greek letters on the board. And the narrator, Karen, writes that word on her notebook and inks it in in red and just as a kind of a decoration doodle while she's, um, you know, while she's listening to the to the introductory lecture in the course. And then, of course, um, in rereading the book, I realized that there's a certain point in the book where I call the word rape a red word, meaning it's a word that draws blood or it's a word that um, that leads us into battle between men and women in a, in a particular way that um, women need to be prepared for if they're going to make an accusation, right? Because culturally, um, a lot of negative attention gets focused on the on the accuser. So what's happened is that um, because of um, hashtag Me Too and anti-sexual violence campaigns being in the forefront of the media right now, the focus has very much been on, um, oh, the red word equals rape, the red word equals rape, which it does in the novel. But my hope was that it would sort of be, um, it would stand in as a kind of a wider thematic issue between, um, you know, a gender issue, an issue of gender and power, and how far back some of our ideas of gender and power go in society, all the way back to Greek myth is sort of the claim that at least the professor in the book is making, Dr. Esterhazy is making. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Sarah Henstra, author of the novel The Red Word. So in the book, you you know, you're talking about these entrenched cultures within college. So one of them is the fraternity system. And you have this fraternity that's called Gamma Beta Chi, which could also stand for Gang Bang Central. That's what the students call it. So you have, you know, fraternity culture and all that means these guys together, these guys that can create a mob mentality, guys that have parties, guys that use women as property, uh, guys that are hazed. You have that entrenched culture. Then you have this women's group and they are they're not in a sorority, but they're they're feminists. They're in the women's club. They take feminist theory. They're in Esther Hazy's class. They are exploring what it means to be a woman emotionally, physically. And it's sort of these two cultures that are at odds with each other. And sexual politics and gender and power is at the heart of the plot and the tension around this. So I, I'm just curious for you to go further because first you were talking about you know, these these subcultures and how you kind of fit in everywhere. And your main character was one of those people. But what made you want to go to this theme of sexual politics and gender? It was two things. It was desire to engage with, I guess, a set of double standards or incompatible uh, ideas 
or practices that I see all around me on campuses um, and that I experienced when I was a student, um, you know, back in the day, which is both male and female students participating in these classes together. So in, in the novel, I don't really, I don't really focus on this, but, you know, I took lots of philosophy classes and political theory classes that had male students in it and female students in it. And I was a member of um, this organization. I don't think it exists anymore. It was called OPERG here. In, and it was, a uh, it was Ontario public interest research group. And at the time it was, it was all about um, anti-corporate culture, you know, boycotting Nike. And we were really inspired by Naomi Klein's book, No Logo at the time. And, uh, and there were male students involved in that, too. It wasn't only a female student slash women's studies feminist um, subculture, but it, it was all kind of balled together. You know, progressive thinking was around um, it was around class and it was around, you know, corporate exploitation of environmental resources. And it was around gender and race and, and all kinds of things bundled together. And but what I saw was that we could be working together on all these, which for us were new ideas, progressive new ideas and politics. And then in the sort of party culture of the campus, the same students, the same male and female students would get into these behaviors that felt really regressive to me and really um, not conscious the way that we were trying to be super conscious in our in our actions around not using plastic wrap on our food or you know that sort of thing like to, for environmental protection so we were like educating ourselves and becoming very conscious and having lots of discourse with each other about certain issues and then when it came time to like pound back the beers and, you know, hang out together after hours, there were such gendered um, differences happening. And there was there was a lot of bad sex. There was a lot of drunken hookup sex. There was a lot of um, situations that made girls feel really gross, that made young women feel exploited. And we didn't have the language for that. You know, none of we, we had all this new language to apply in other spheres, but we didn't have the language to talk about what happened between us at parties or what happened between us when we were dating or, um, you know, in bed, essentially. And I think that was really lagging behind a lot of the other cultural conversations that were going on at the time. And I think now, I, well, I'm hopeful at least that now it's catching up and that we're starting to talk about what happens in the bedroom between, you know, a male student and a female student and what consent looks like and how to have that conversation. So for me, writing this book, I was interested in the, in the gaps, really, and what was what what I didn't know how to put words to that at the time. And, I, you know, I've sort of been thinking about it in a really low grade way ever since. And um, that was part of the impulse for focusing on um, the fraternity versus the feminist student is feminist students is to kind of bring that disparity out as as dramatically as possible. And that was sort of the second reason I did it is I was looking for a story that had you know, clear stakes and high stakes in the plot. And, and so dividing it in, along these lines of gender um, really helps that happen in the story. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Sarah Henstra, author of the novel The Red Word. Your main character and narrator is Karen Hulls. She is Canadian and goes to this unnamed Ivy League school she is sort of a drifter. She fits in with many groups. She lives with a bunch of staunch feminists in a house called Braghurst. And she's also dating a fraternity boy named Mike, but is in love with one of his frat brothers named Bruce. 
Karen is witness to the crazy frat parties and the activities of her activist roommates. She herself is a woman of inaction. She witnesses much, but says little. At the heart of this story is the sexual assault at the fraternities. So her roommates, Diane, Charla, Stephanie, and... And Mary Jean, the Quebecois student who's also from Canada. <laughs> right. And yeah. um, they they basically wanted to infiltrate the fraternity and get into the basement room where the supposed gangbang central activities took place, where women were taken advantage of. And they, when Karen wasn't there um, one evening, basically made a plan to infiltrate and record some of the sexual activity, whether it was uh, consensual or non-consensual that went on in this basement. So they were basically spies going into enemy territory, but also manipulating what happened because they weren't going in just as observers. They were going in as actors, instigating the thing itself that you're claiming happens. I think that it's not inconceivable that a group of students who are so frustrated with being forced into the position of passivity and reactivity to the misbehavior of of men, right? And and it's like, great, we just have to wait for the next assault to take place, and then we record it in the file, and we report it, and nothing's ever done about it. And it's it's a it's an act of um, extremism, right? That they that they perform out of a sense of futility and frustration at lack of lack of change and lack of response, and they feel that the ends justify the means, at least for a while in the novel, they really believe that, that this is something that they're capable of doing and they can step up and take the fall for it in whatever way it falls out, but they stand a chance of getting this fraternity banned from the campus if they can actually get some kind of video um, evidence, because it's always evidence, it's his word against hers, right? Evidence is where these cases fall down. People say, you know, well, it's, yeah, they just say that there, there wasn't the right kind of evidence in these cases most of the time. And, and also, you know, we're talking about um, campus-specific investigations of sexual misconduct complaints or sexual violent, com- violence complaints, which they, it intersects with police um, procedure and police jurisdiction, but it's often conducted very separately from the legal system, right? Campuses have their own systems of inquiry that may or may not ever result in a in an in a, an accused um, student being suspended or expelled, right? And so there's this sort of feeling that that the the women of Raghurst have that the stakes are so stacked against them, the system is so stacked against them that they there's nothing else they can do. Or here is something that they could do that has a chance of producing real material change on campus. But of course, they, you know, like any good plot, they don't foresee all the of their actions. And so things spin very rapidly out of, out of control. If you know and hear that all this rape is going on or sexual assault on various levels somewhere, and you decide, you know, we're going to actually send in an undercover person to go in and get raped. I mean, first of all, there's that, the whole question of, wow, who's willing, you know, how far will you sacrifice to prove your point? And is that an ultimate sacrifice? But at the same time, is it authentically rape when someone goes in to get raped? 
well, that's sort of the, the key question, right? That that tears the group of female students apart and also has probably less talked about, but also very significant um, consequences in the frat house too, amongst the amongst the frat brothers, right? So how far is too far for a cause? It seems like that was something that you wanted to explore. Uh, it is something I wanted to explore. But, you know, I think the thing I was going after as a writer had to do with something that's harder to put into words, even now, I think, in the in the time period, that, you know, that we're reading the story rather than um, the time period in which it's set in the mid-90s, which is a question of female sexual desire and female agency and the sort of desire that infuses female friendships and the, the way that ambition and desire kind of can fold together for women and whether that looks different from the way it might fold together for men. I think that like many women, you know, as someone who's taken women's studies courses and studied feminist theory my whole academic career, I sometimes feel the frustration about how difficult it is to talk about women's desire because we're always focused on male desire and policing it and keeping it from impinging on our bodies and and our our agency in the world and our freedoms. And to be able to authentically explore and uh, uh, and talk about women's desire, whether it's same-sex desire or desire for men or desire for, um, I don't know, motherhood, you know, like what do women want? <laughs> it's like Freud's question still that we're grappling with. It's so hard to have that conversation without right away having to talk about the way that patriarchy and patriarchal discourse um, circumscribes female desire and constricts it and gives it its vocabulary and prevents us from kind of getting out of it, right? How do you define yourself as a woman who's sexually active in the world and desiring without bumping right up against how women are portrayed in the media as sex objects or how identity categories get sort of slammed into these little boxes so fast? And that's something that is possibly looser now. And, and there's more room for that kind of conversation and that kind of exploration now than there was in the 90s. But I felt like I was really curious about that when I was writing this novel. And I guess this is, it sounds like I'm not answering your question, but I'm trying to come around to talking about how far is too far, right? And, and I, I have this sense as a, as a woman uh, who's now in my mid-40s and has, you know, I think learned a lot about my own sexual desire and my own self as a woman in the world, but also as a writer reading about women and women's relationships with men and women's relationships with each other that it's really easy to go quote unquote, too far as a woman, really easy, because um, it's so transgressive to act on female desire in our society, or even really to represent it or talk about it. So yeah, I mean, how far is too far? They did some pretty illegal things in this book. And that, you know, there's no two ways about it. But at the same time, you know, it's they, they found themselves falling into the category of, you know, you are not allowed to do this. Um, you know, like the, the, the roommate who sets herself up to be the, the, the rape victim. Right. It's like she even within the women's house, even within Raghurst, she finds herself very isolated. And there are rifts in the relationships within that house because the because Diane is completely shocked um, in retrospect at what Sharla has done, right? And uh, and can't deal with Char whatever Sharla's motivations were for um, for participating like that. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Sarah Henstra, author of the novel The Red Word. Another aspect that is clear in this book is that mob mentality fits in to both sides. If, yeah. if you're talking about the women, whether it's the pressure or the excitement of learning these ideas and wanting to put them into the test as they try to challenge the life at the fraternity. And then there's the mob mentality at the fraternity that when they get into the basement or not even necessarily just in the basement, but when they're drinking and partying that they're Mm -hmm. part of this brotherhood. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about the mob mentality and if that was on your mind when you were writing this. It was very much on my mind. I think people behave completely differently when they're in a group um, and the and 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 things heat up than they are um, on their own. Or whenever you're in in a discourse between two people, there's there's immediately um, a, you're looking in that person's face, you know, and you're listening to what they're saying, and that's very different than if you're yelling through a bullhorn to a group on the other side of the road. I really wanted to portray what happens, what can happen in a frat house to the individual, you know, discernment of a of a of a male student when he's you know drinking his face off and he's surrounded by a bunch of bros and. You know, that's a reality that we all know about from, um, you know, there's been one fraternity scandal after another. And sports teams is very similar, right? That's where you hear about gang rapes and, and hazing and all that type of behavior happens happens on mass. It doesn't happen, you know, one, one person doesn't do it to one person without that context of permissiveness, collective permissiveness and, and egging each other on. But in my novel, I wanted to explore that amongst the feminist students, too, and amongst the campus activists and you know, the way that uh, ideas, political ideas, or even just emotional reactions can get blown into these sort of epic mob um, sentiments. And um, what actually happens to Bruce um, toward the end of the novel is that he gets caught in the mob of, of, of women, of young female students. And, uh, and that's, you know, there are moments in the fraternity house when a certain song comes on and all the guys rush into a room and there's this crazy physical kind of um, mob behavior, right? That's this wild, almost bacchan- Greek bacchanal, you know, kind of losing your mind in the, in the heat of bodies and in the heat of the moment. But the same thing happens uh, with the female students at their house party, when they've all been drinking and they're all dancing around and, you know, and then, uh, and there's this, you know, there's this moment in the book where they, they talk about the, the main ads, the Greek main ads who were, um, devotees of Dionysus and that they were female, um, female, uh, acolytes of the God and they would be doing their rituals in the wood and within the woods. And it could be very dangerous, um, to a, a passerby. They could, that, that person could be dismembered by the main ads was the legend anyway, because of their frenzy, right. Uh, in their, in their rituals and in their revelry. And, uh, and that was another working title for the book at one point was main ads. And again, I just thought that's that's pointing at the female students exclusively. And that and this is about um, this kind of group think um, happening to susceptible students, susceptible meaning, you know, post-adolescent uh, people who are enjoying passionate relationships with their peers and are really, really open to influence. Um, it's not only that age group that can fall into these kind of mob 
um, and extreme ways of thinking, but it often is. You know, you often hear about extremism, and it and it's um, it's young it's young people who get caught up in it. Um, I think very easily, right after they first leave the influence of their their parental homes and feel like everything they're learning is absolutely vital and life changing and earth changing. And so that's happening on both sides in the novel to the male students in the in the frat houses and also to the female students. There's one point where Diane, who was the ringleader says to Karen, you you basically don't understand that the personal is political. You know, when you're talking about someone putting themselves up to potentially be a rape victim, you're really talking about the personal and the political. You know, the, the Me Too campaign and the, the political uh, uh, momentum that we have right now in public discourse around talking about sexual violence and, and, and sexual misconduct and, and how to develop policies to protect women and to, you know, show that these behaviors never were acceptable and now they're not going to be tolerated anymore. That's a, a really good example of, um, of taking something that has traditionally been seen as so personal, you know, your personal shameful experience of having been raped or sexually assaulted at some point in your life that you might confess at some point in your life to a lover you can really trust or a best friend, but it would always be, you know, a a kind of an experience that you would protect because it's so personal, it's so shameful, it's so private. Um, part Part of the problem with seeing those experiences like that as the most personal experiences we have is that it keeps them really locked away from the political sphere it keeps them away from any kind of um, public scrutiny or public discourse, the, the kind of discourse that could actually enact change, right, at any kind of systemic level or cultural level. Um, and so I think that it's a vital slogan for feminism, right, as, and for many different um, progressive movements to say that the personal is political, you know, um, uh, personal choices and personal experiences are culturally and politically inflected all the time. And if we fail to see that, then we're really barring ourselves from from uh, acting for change, right, or, um, or or asking for change. And at the same time, the, the idea of the, of the overlap between personal and political is something that's been used against women for a long, long time. For example, if a woman does make an accusation of sexual um, violence, um, her personal life is dragged out into the open on the stand and everything she's ever done in the bedroom is called, is used against her, right? Um, so unless she's um, absolutely virginal and pure, like Joan of Arc pure, um, she's going to have a hard time being her own character witness as, um, you know, as an accuser. And so it's, so that, so that statement, the personal is political is, is, um, it's a double-edged statement and it's uh it's it's very complicated and i don't think we've quite figured out the way it's meant to work in in our society you're listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio i'm mitzi rapkin my guest who joined me via skype is sarah henstra author of the novel the red word can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer the truth is that my writing is influenced by all kinds of folklore and mythology and fairy tales. And uh, a book that I have been returning to over and over, both in my teaching practice and in my writing practice, is um, Jack Zipes' relatively new 
translation of the original folk and fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, the Grimm fairy tales. And uh, Jack Sipes is a, a really um, kind of preeminent fairy tale scholar, and his specialty is the Grimm Brothers, the German the German collection of fairy tales. And uh, I, I teach a course called Fairy Tales and Fantasy at Ryerson. It's an enormous undergraduate course that I adore teaching, and it's a it's um it's a way of showing students and allowing students to explore the ongoing relevance of fairy tales, not just for when they were kids in picture books, but in um, contemporary literature and culture today. So this is um, Jack Sipes' new translation of the Grimm Brothers fairy tales. And one of the things that Sipes does is he includes all of these really weird, obscure fairy tales that don't make it into the major pop culture canon today. And uh, one of them is very short, and I'll read it to you. It's called The Hand with the Knife. There once was a little girl who had three brothers, and the boys meant the world to her mother. Yet the little girl was always neglected, treated badly, and forced to go out early in the morning every day to dig up peat from the dry ground on the heath, which they used for making fires and cooking. To top it all off, she was given an old, blunt shovel to perform this nasty work. But the little girl had an admirer who was an elf and lived in a hill near her mother's house. Whenever she went by the hill, he would stretch out his hand from the rocky slope and offer her a knife that had miraculous powers and could cut through anything. She used this knife to cut out the peat and would finish her work quickly. Then she would return home happily with the necessary load, and when she walked by the rocky slope, she would knock twice, and the hand would reach out and take back the knife. When the mother noticed how swiftly and easily she came back home with the peat, she told the girl's brothers that there must be someone helping her, otherwise it would be impossible for her to complete the work so fast. So the brothers crept out after her and watched her receive the magic knife. They overtook her and forced her to give it to them. Then they returned to the rocky slope, knocked the way she had always done, and when the good elf stretched out his hand, they cut it off with his very own knife. The bloody arm drew back, and since the elf believed that his beloved had betrayed him, he was never seen again after that. The end. Do you want to say anything else about that? What I love about the story are, you know, the bloody arm draws back, but the story is left with a bloody bleeding stump, right? There's like so, there's such a ragged closure for us and there's so prominent a lack of a happy ending in this story. And when you explore the fairy tales in their early forms, this is the first edition of the Brothers Grimm and this is before the Brothers Grimm went back and started cleaning up all these tales that they had collected from around um, Europe. That you know, they over the successive editions of the fairy tales books they published, they kept making them more and more appropriate for young Christian children in Germany. And the female characters behaved more and more like ladies, and were more and more obedient to their parents. And there were nice Christian endings about God making everything okay at the end of all the tales. But in this early edition, you see that these stories were really mysterious and violent and disturbing. And I love the the rawness of those original tales and how they, they encode so much cultural um, material that is really discomforting even today, or, or maybe even more so today. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft, or it's just something that you like? 
Well, I'd like to read this epic catalog, or at least the beginning of it. This is one of the the Greek myth bits (laughs) that I put into the book and uh, kind of chickened out on in the early drafts and then ended up restoring to the book. And I think the book is stronger for it. And it's a, it's a way of juxtaposing what happens at a student house party potluck dinner with, um, you know, the troops gathering on the shores of Troy uh, in the Greek war, in the Iliad. The women gathered at Raghurst. They journeyed to us from their dorm rooms and from their shared student housing apartments and from the rental houses nearby our own and from the high-rise towers downtown and from their parents' homes in the suburbs. Throughout the sky-lowering early winter afternoon, they came on foot and tramped in heavy shoes up our stairs. They carried their bicycles onto our porch so that they could keep an eye on them through the living room window and thus avoid theft. They carpooled and parked their cars along our street, taking care not to block any of our neighbors' driveways. In our front hall, the women shed their cold-going clothing and relieved themselves of their burdens. Rows and then piles of their footwear covered our floor. There were granny boots and desert boots and secondhand combat boots polished to a fine black shine. There were sturdy Birkenstocks with their stained suede footbeds. There were clogs with hardwood soles and leather stapled all around. There were web-like tevas meant for climbing waterfalls and gum-soled moccasins lined with shearling. Rucksacks they brought, those who journeyed directly from class or study sessions at the libraries. Great nylon, multi-pocketed backpacks with reflective tape and hidden adjustable aluminum frames. Woven canvas haversacks with detachable shoulder straps. Army surplus parachute bags with superfluous buckles. Carabiner clipped to the straps, there were eco mugs and bamboo sporks and water bottles with bendy straws advertising the name and address of ski resorts. The women brought with them their day-going things, the things without which they never left their homes. Yoga mats in sleeves fashioned by their own hands from vintage floral living room drapes at the Women's Centre DIY workshops, or in sleeves of recycled sari fabric from the Fair Trade Sisters store downtown. There were dog-eared copies of the Tao of Pooh, and coffee-stained copies of Manufacturing Consent, and copies of Gender Trouble with the covers missing. There were quilted goose down parkas and quilted flannel slack jackets and Guatemalan patchwork bombers and U.S. Navy issue peacoats with hand-sewn rainbow flags at the elbows and Peruvian sweaters knit from oatmeal-colored wool and turd-colored wool and emblazoned with geometric llamas and with possibly spiritually significant tribal motifs. And all the purses, jackets, berets, backpacks, sweaters, scarves everywhere on the linoleum floor at Raghurst were bespangled with message buttons big and small, bright and dense as meadow flowers. My body, my choice. Farmers feed cities. Dog is love. No means no. Jane's addiction. And tell me why you chose that. I chose it because it was a passage that came out of the book and then went back into the book. And because for me, it was 100% joy to write this passage, collecting these details from mid-90s female students' campus culture. And a lot of these things were very specific to the mid-90s, but they still exist today. And I think readers can recognize um, that kind of self-expression that flourishes and flowers in university that people 
you know, it's self-expression through what you wear and what you and the, the kind of political buttons you put on your clothes and the things you carry around. And for many people, the first time they really get to do that is when they have a little bit of spending money and they're out of their, their childhood home for the first time. And they look around at what other people are wearing and carrying and they want to identify themselves as belonging to a certain group. And so this is that list of the really one way of looking at it is the weaponry that they carry and the armor that they're adorning themselves with to, uh, to encounter the challenges of everyday life. Where do you write? I write in cafes most of the time. And uh, almost more important than where I write is is um, who whom I'm sitting across from, um, because I have a number of writing buddies. Um, we don't show each other our work, but we put our earbuds in and we get off Facebook and, you know, get off the Internet altogether. And we just keep each other at the task of uh, working on our fiction for the couple of hours or whatever it is we set as the time that we're going to meet. It's a bit like having a running buddy, you know, it's a bit of accountability. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I feel like a lot of the rest of my life, my nine to five job uh, is, is I'm a teacher, I teach in a university. So uh, I'm surrounded by books all the time because I work in an English department, but it's very different energy from trying to give up responsibility to others and immerse into um, the writing, the creative writing. So I feel like I, I'm driven away from writing by many other parts of my life. And sitting down to write is a way of um, coming back to it after a, after a long absence. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I used to have beta readers. I used to have groups of people that I trusted, friends I trusted. Um, but my practice has become more and more private. And now the first person I show new work to is my, my agent, my literary agent, Martha Webb. How have you dealt with rejection? I've dealt with rejection by continuing to write new material. I try to always have something on the go that no one is looking at and no one knows about pretty much. <laughs> because I feel, for me, that activity of already having my energies in a new project, uh, it's a kind of inoculation against the judgments that come down on my writing from you know, the inevitable judgments that come down from trying to shop a book around or, you know, trying to bring new work into the world. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> my favorite word today, because it really literally changes every day. Uh, my favorite word today is the word stealth. And I was thinking about this word on the way to work this morning, thinking it's such a simple word. Why would that be my favorite word? But I love the way the word stealth begins with the, the ST sound and ends in a quiet, sneaky TH sound. And you can whisper the word stealth, and it sounds just as good as when you say it aloud. And so I, I always love words that sound like the thing that they're trying to represent. And to me, stealth is one of those words. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Sarah Henstra, author of the novel The Red Word. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.